HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Laura Stanley, host of Inside School Food. You are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. This is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers, coming to you today from the Volunteer Tavern in Bristol, UK, where we just had our first Farm Hack UK. Oh, my gosh. So fun. Now I'm standing outside with the, with all the kegs talking to Leah Zeiss, who's coming from the Native Food Project. Hello, Leah. Hello. Hello. So we're coming into a new me. moon. I wonder if you could introduce yourself and your work. Absolutely. My name is Leah Zizi. I'm from the Oneida Nation of Indians in Wisconsin. I'm Wolf Clan. I work for the Intertribal Agriculture Council as a marketing and logistics specialist. I work primarily in the Great Lakes region of the United States. So let's just introduce what is the Intertribal Food Council? The Intertribal Agriculture Council is a nonprofit that got started in 1987 with a mission to bring more awareness to how Indian lands are being used for Indian agriculture. So a lot of it goes to how are tribes interfacing with the USDA to access USDA programs and loans to improve Intertribal Agriculture Council. So one thing I learned is that Many people on reservations who are trying to farm and trying to get loans in order to capitalize their farm businesses are unable to access those loans because the USDA needs land ownership as a basis for those loans. Um, What are some other of the challenges um, and opportunities that you are mapping in your work with the Intertribal Agricultural Council? So we get a really great perspective on a lot of different tribal agricultural endeavors, um, from maple syrup to wild rice to growing the white corn. And what we can see is how traditional USDA programs don't account for those very special kinds of agricultural um, programs. So, for example, wild rice was not recognized as an agricultural product. And so there was no money written into the farm bill for wild rice. It took work of several organizations 
several years to get wild rice recognized as a product. And now that it is recognized, people who harvest wild rice or manage wild rice beds in northern Wisconsin or Minnesota or even upper Michigan have access to USDA money for improved conservation or for value-added product money, um, for farm loans, and those kinds of things. So what we, we look at how the USDA programs are operating, and then we look at what's going on in Indian agriculture, and we try to make those connections and make those programs work for the tribal people that are um, farming or gathering wild harvested crops. So you're kind of like playing shoots and ladders with the world as it is in order to help fulfill the mission of greater engagement in agriculture on the, the res. Can you give a little bit more examples of some of the um, agricultural products that are coming into your supply chain there um, and how you're distributing those products? Absolutely. Um, maple syrup is a really good example. We have uh, various tribes that have been sugaring for thousands of years in northeastern Wisconsin and the Great Lakes area. And what the tribes are doing at this point is creating an intertribal maple syrup producers cooperative so that they can collect together the little bit of syrup that they produce beyond what they use for their own families and for bartering to market a product and bring more awareness to the tribal way to harvest the syrup. So more awareness to the ceremonies, more awareness to the respect that's given the land and the kind of um, reverence that's given the land in the process. Um, we also have Oneida white corn that's grown um, here in Wisconsin. And that's a heritage breed that we've had for, it's, it's in our creation story. I mean, it goes back with us to the beginning of our time. Um, it has a huge history involved with the United States. Um, it was a corn that fed George Washington's troops at Valley Forge. And protecting that corn is something that the Oneida people think is very important. So. When we look at where we're going to grow our corn, we have to take into account where are other farmers growing GMOs and are they going to cross-pollinate with our sacred corn. And so that gives us an opportunity to look at tribal food codes and tribal agriculture codes on reservations to be able to see if we can somehow keep, uh, protect this crop that we have from uh, infiltration from GMOs. So in that sense, the, the work of moving this product out into a wider market and selling it is not just about bringing in some dollars from a cash crop. It seems like it's also a really important advocacy tool for sharing the story of Native foodways and the sacred trust that you take really seriously of protecting these foods as a commons for the future. Um, how do you communicate yeah. that? How, how do you embed the food with that message? So something that the, the cooperative is looking at doing right now is to create a label that certifies the food as being produced with a certain intention and with a certain sort of respect, in much the same way that kosher foods carry that sort of understanding or halal foods carry that understanding that this food was produced in a certain way. And so we're looking at what kind of label can we put on our food that says that we, it was produced in a good way, it was produced with respect, and it, and it with the good um, intentions for not only the environment but also the people who are going to be consuming it. So there isn't really anything that we have in place right now that does that. We're looking at developing that. Something that is out there is a trademark that the Intertribal Agriculture Council 
actually um, overseas, and that trademark certifies food as being American Indian made or produced. It also certifies um, arts and crafts, just to protect the authenticity of the food. Um, the label that we're thinking about goes a little bit beyond that and talks about the the spirituality or the culture that was involved in the production of the food as well. So many people are just beginning their journey into understanding the sacred economies of Native American engagement with the landscape and the tending of the wild. You know, we just have maybe read Kat Anderson. Maybe we started to read Robin Kimmerer, Robin Wall Kimmerer. Maybe we're just, you know, edging into a bare-bones literacy about um, these critical and super diverse food cultures that predate white settlement in this continent. Um, could you just maybe help a little bit in pointing us to some of the places where we might go and learn more um, in order to bring ourselves up to speed to even be able to have a conversation that's, you know, semi-intelligent? about what the future holds for these Native food traditions. Absolutely. Um, here in the Great Leaks region, I would point you in the direction of Patty Lowe, who is a professor at UW-Madison. She's done a lot of great work in protecting wild rice beds from mining interests and talking about how we have a responsibility to protect these sacred foods and to stand up and speak out in their because they don't have voices. So we're the voices for these foods and for these ways. Um, I would also point to Paul DeMaine, who is the spokesperson for the Harvest Education Learning Project. He played an instrumental role in setting up a camp, a harvest camp for maple sugar and other wild harvested foods, right outside the boundaries of the Pinocchi mine. There was going to be a, a taconite mine that was going to be put in in northern Wisconsin up near the, on the Bad River Reservation. And the whole point of the Harvest Camp was to do outreach and to invite people in. They actually had about 5,000 visitors every year come in and learn how to maple sugar and learn how to harvest wild leeks and mushrooms and all these different things to build that community to support these really important stories, these really important connections that we have to the products that come out of the forest. So, so as we're thinking about the future of these lands, which are still held um, by the tribes and which are many times leased out to non-tribal members for many times conventional agricultural purposes or hunting, where there's kind of overlapping rights, um, you know, the, the treaty rights around native hunting and then contractual rights, um, uh, around agriculture or other access to hunting, and we're thinking about the restoration of those places as commons for um, self-resilience and native foodways. Tell me some of the um, hopeful spots, like the bright spots that you see um, progress, or progress is a loaded word, um, traction for restoring those foodways. What are, the, what are the hopeful spots that you look towards on your horizon? You know, we just had a, a Great Lakes Intertribal Food Summit here up at Oneida, Wisconsin, and it really gave us an opportunity to talk about all of the great work that we're doing in our region to support American Indian agriculture. Um, Odawa just purchased a 300-acre farm to start growing 
vegetables and fruits for their members. Um, Oneida itself has an integrated food system, so not only do we have farms in place, but then we also have a cannery that can turn those products into apple pie filling or dried apple chips or even process all of our white corn. And then we also have markets on the reservation that we sell those products to the tribal members so that everyone has access to the corn, everyone has access to the apples, the grass-fed beef and the bison, those kinds of things. Um, Wajupi Farm out at Shakopee in Minnesota is another really good example of that, where they have an integrated food system and a marketplace for those foods on the reservation. Um, even though reservations seem like they're all tribally owned land, most reservations actually aren't owned by the tribe or tribal members. Through the Allotment Act in the 30s, a lot of the land was um, sold off because those had been a lot of the land were unable to pay the property taxes. And so the government took the land back and then kind of sold it out to the highest bidder. So you have this checkerboard situation on the reservation where some of it is owned by tribal members, some of it is owned by the tribe and trust, but the majority of it is actually owned by non-tribal members. And that makes for a very sticky situation when it comes to jurisdiction over how the lands are going to be used. Um, especially when it comes to, like, GMOs and pesticides and those kinds of things. Um, as far as other bright spots, we have uh, the tribal colleges, the College of Menominee Nation, the Kudere Ojibwe um, College. They also have farms that they're starting up to, to reinvigorate those um, old teachings and those old lessons that we have about farming in a good way. So I, I think that's what our brightest future is, teaching our children how to farm. A lot of Native kids are hungry for the language and the culture and the songs and the foods of our ancestral past, whereas a pre the previous generation, maybe the generation just before mine and the one before that, went through the boarding school era, so they don't have that same relationship or desire to learn those things that were really taken away from them um, and told to be, you know, you don't want to be speaking your language and you don't want to be identified as being American Indian because that is a bad thing. So it's really nice to see that our youth are... Um, proud of where they come from, proud of their language, and proud of their food. So there's been an incredible leadership, um, Indigenous youth. I don't know more in the climate work, in defending lands against pipelines, um, buffalo, in protecting the buffalo, and tracking the buffalo. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that leadership um, that you see rising a bit more and and... Well, I want to kind of know a little bit about the Buffalo, um, the Buffalo Commons and how that is, what the kind of discourse is about what the right outcome would be for that particular wild creature and our relationship to it. You know, that's, that's going to be an ongoing discussion in terms of uh, reinstating not only the buffalo but also the natural landscapes that were in this area, the, the grass, the prairie savannas, and those types of things. Um, there, we do have uh, Oneida tribe has uh, a buffalo herd. There, I think there's one other buffalo herd in our area, um, and it is starting to come back that connection to the buffalo, um, that interest in, you know, raising the the buffalo in a good way. I don't know if we're ever going to see the kind of wild herds that we've had in the past, but there are people who are really putting the time, getting their hands dirty and making that happen. 
we don't have a lot of that in our region um, specifically. I would say that would be more of the um, the mountain region that has, you know, the plains in that. But we definitely do have some buffalo herds that are being upkept in, in our region, and it's um, it's just nice to see that people, I think, really respect that. Yeah, there was an amazing report put out in about the late 1980s from Rutgers. It's called the Buffalo Commons, and basically makes a sociopolitical analysis of the what's called, you know, the Great American Desert, basically over the Ogallala north of there, um, plains where the Dust Bowl struck and where now we're mining water to grow alfalfa and corn and other crops, and basically making the argument that uninstalling that hyper-energy-intensive, water-intensive, um, fossil water-based agricultural economy and reinstating a, a grassland with buffalo and, and related businesses, that you would improve, you know, human health and well-being, wealth generation, uh, social equity, civic engagement, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a really compelling, provocative, controversial firestorm-inducing report. Um, and anyway, there's there's not always that many things. There's not always that many reports that blow people's buttons like that. Um, but I, I super <laughs> appreciated it. I wish we had more like that. Absolutely. I think what you're going to see in the future along the same veins is this semi-controversial topic or idea of decolonization. And that's something that's really starting to take a foothold in uh, in discussion circles in smaller conferences that are happening uh, among the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois people is this concept of understanding that there were a lot of lessons, a lot of knowledge that was here that worked for a really long time and provided a lot of these really important services to the community. And we've we've... Uh, we've been pulled away from those in, in various directions, um, but we're starting to have the resources and the capacity. We're coming out of survival mode, I think, and able to really look back and say, you know, we had some really good ideas, and we can trust ourselves enough to try to implement those ideas in a modern world, not necessarily that we're going to go build longhouses and live, live in longhouses again, but there are certain things that have happened throughout time that have been of great aid, and there are a lot of things that have really deteriorated the health of the environment and the people as we knew it here. So that concept, I think, of decolonization, if you keep that as a keyword when you're looking around, you're going to see more of that as a driver for decolonizing our diets, decolonizing our agriculture, decolonizing even our education. So that's, that's something I think that's going to be pretty controversial as well. Well, I guess my I'm inspired. You know, there's so much of the vernacular of the young farmers movement where you know, we dress like miners and loggers and we look like miners and loggers and we're homesteading and really embodying a lot of the attitudes that are associated with kind of pioneer and settler culture and um I think that's a lot of times really unconscious and uh you know, kind of historically uh, naive and unintentional. And I guess the question that I have in 
talking with you is, you know, how can this predominantly white um, organic farming movement that I'm a part of be a better ally and support the, the rhetoric, the practices, um, the process, the partnership that it will take for that, um, for what you guys are talking about. Like, I think number one would be listening. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't beat yourself up too much about idealizing a time in the past. Because right now we're all dealing with really serious crises that are very much steeped in decisions of the present. And so we're all kind of looking back to a time when it was better. So I don't think that, you know, necessarily embodying that, um, you know, dressing like a miner or a logger or something like that means that you think that manifest destiny is really, was a really great idea. Um, I, I, I wouldn't interpret it that way. Um, but as far as becoming an ally, I think that listening really is what we need, listening and then sharing what it is that sort of Native people are putting out there on the table right now. We're starting to be more vocal, a lot more vocal than we have been in the last decades. Um, and that what we're saying isn't necessarily that um, we want to dismantle something or we think we need to get away from something, but we can build something that's better and we can take the lessons that we know and apply it to where we are now and really improve the situation. Um, there are a lot of tribal organizations, nonprofits, um, tribally owned businesses that are springing up all over the place. And so, you know, Shouting out to them, supporting them in any way. Um, I think that the tribal colleges are a really great ally, place to start in building allies because there's a young group of populace of people there who they're they're just they're looking for that for allies for people to work with them and to hear them out and to support them in what they're doing. Well, one little call out I want to make is the Indigenous Farming Conference. Um, which I really yeah. hope to attend. Do you want to make any other couple little uh, event announcements? People who are hearing this sure. and feeling like, yeah, let me tune up my literacy. Let me show up in person. Let me make some relationships. Um, let me show some solidarity. Where would be some places to show up? I think that the Indigenous Farming Conference is a great place to start. Um, we have our Great Lakes Intertribal Food Summit here in Oneida. That's a couple weeks after that. So that was just last week. Um, in October, there's a Food Sovereignty Summit. In, uh, in August or September, there is um, Research in Indigenous, uh, what is it, Community Health, the Rich Summit. Um, then in December, there's the um, Intertribal Agriculture Council's membership meeting out in, uh, in Las Vegas. So we kind of all year long, we have different events that are going on. Um, something that's going on in New York, I know a lot of you are based in the Northeast area. There's the um, American Indian Music and Dance Festival happening at Ganondigan, and that's in July. And I think that would be a really great opportunity to, to come and show some support and some, 
start some conversations around that as well. They have a great white corn project that they're working on over there, too, the same white corn that we have. Well, and I know there's an amazing strawberry festival. I think it's in Mohawk land in June. Oh, um, Leah, let's I didn't put, even know about that. Put, <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> let's put it all down. Let's do the little linky link, clickety-click, clickety-clack. I'll blog it and tweet it and everything, and we can email to get the whole list going. But then we can be quickly bundling that for all of our greenhorns to just know what's out awesome. there. And if not this year, put it on the meta agenda for next year. Fabulous. Wow, I'm really thankful for your time and for your voice and your pure vision. Um, I really I really look forward to being together again in present. And um, tell me, what's your plan for the summer? What are you growing in your garden? Okay, so my mom and I decided we're going to plant two acres of white corn this year. We've never planted the white corn before, um, but we feel like it's time to plant. And that is um, one of our prophecies right now is it's time to plant. It's time to give thanks to those plants again. Um, it's time to bless the seeds, to put some tobacco down and as an offering to them, maintaining their responsibilities and for us to remember our responsibilities to those plants. So we're planting the white corn. That'll be an amazing project. Um, I'm actually about to move over into the eastern and southern region of the United States and do my same job right over there. So I'll be in your area very shortly. Um, and uh, what else? I'm hoping that I can just have a little herb garden because, you know, with my work, I travel pretty much all the time. So keeping even a cactus alive at this point <laughs> is a challenge. So luckily my mom is partnering up with me on the white corn. She'll take really good care of it when I'm gone. These are the intergenerational alliances that we require. Oh, so beautiful. I wish I was planting a garden with my mother. Well, everybody, <laughs> I am running out of time. I want to thank Leah. I want to thank you all for being such loyal listeners, despite our often terrible sound quality, and um, invite you to check out some of the upcoming events. Check out all the work of the British peeps. They've been diligently documenting the tools and aspirations of Farm Hack projects over here. Farm Hack Scotland's in the works. We had an amazing time with the Atelier Paysan, which is the new name for the Adabio Autoconstruction that I'm sure you heard me talk about if you're any kind of lawyer listener at all, um, which is a team of French engineers working around the country helping farmers build their own tools using stock metal and open source design for low tillage, organic market gardening, um, up to about 25 acres. You can get the training for free, paid for by uh, social government programs, and just pay for them and walk away with basically like 30,000 euros worth of equipment um, and the knowledge of how to fix it. So it's been an incredibly inspiring time. We have a very busy summer coming up, um, sales freight, um, Grange events in Oregon, uh, Grange events in Adirondacks next summer, um, a whole fall full of programs. So please check out the calendar, and um, we'll see you out there. Bye, Leah. Bye, Severin. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. 
You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thank you.